Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. When our heroes, one goes bad, one goes bad for a little bit, it's because fear of loss leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to the dark side. I think you're completely right that it would have been harder for the Star Wars movies to break out without the idea of the Force and making people think, what is this? Can I have access to it? To, to kids, that's, that's really cool. It lends something to the mentor-mentee relationship as well. It's not just like, here's how you fight with a lightsaber. It's like, here's how you connect to the entire universe. Right, completely. So I'm wondering if, the idea of something breaking out in a Star Trek way or even a Star Wars way is no, even no longer possible, given that we have so many things battling for the attention of young minds. So I have Cass Sunstein with me. Cass, thank you for coming on the show. Um, you wrote The World According to Star Wars, but I have to say this is the weirdest book I've ever seen from someone because you're known for doing anything but writing pop culture books, wouldn't you say? Uh, definitely. So it's certainly the most unexpected book I've ever written. I think my colleagues are horrified. Uh, 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 somewhere between puzzled and and horrified. Uh, probably the weight of uh, opinion among my colleagues is in the direction of the horrified, but they're a forgiving bunch. So, so let's just just let's put it in context. Tell me a little bit more about your background. You're you're the most cited legal professor in history, according to various sources, probably yourself included. Um, you worked for the White House uh, under the Obama administration from, I guess, 2009 to 2013. You were in the um, I don't know the name of it. It's one of those ambiguous uh, organizations. So what was the name of the organization you led? Well, it was the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which oversees uh, the Paperwork Reduction Act, which is a work in progress, as those who face undue paperwork burdens from the federal government will attest. It oversees federal regulation, environmental protection, immigration, um, health care, uh, highway safety, like, food safety. Just so I understand what that is, like what, what does that mean? Like often, and I guess... This kind of shows uh, how naive I am about how things actually get done. But let's say Congress passes a law or the president says do this. Is your office one of those organizations that actually makes sure it gets done? It's yes, though it's a little uh, phrased a little differently. So if there's 
Uh, something coming from the Environmental Protection Agency. Like what? Uh, climate change regulation or regulation involving air pollution or water pollution. So like this company or these companies are no longer allowed to do X. Yes. Yeah, so if it says that, for example, uh, states have to make sure the air in New York or uh, Los Angeles isn't dirtier than a specified level. And that would be all happening under the Clean Air Act, which was passed many decades ago. Then the the government, the executive branch, has to make it happen, and it makes it happen through things called regulations. And those regulations often produce very high benefits in terms of saving lives. They also often produce very high costs in the form of uh, energy may cost more or uh, automobiles may cost more because they have to have anti-pollution technology. And the regulations actually can't be finalized or even proposed until the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs has, uh, has cleared it. And the clearance process. Do you study the the pros and cons? Are cars going to go up? Are the price of cars going to go so much the economy is going to be ruined, or should we save all these lives? Uh, yeah, there'll be trade-offs, and of course, any part of the government is working with other parts of the government. So the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs on the environmental side will work closely with the Environmental Protection Agency, which has the kind of policy lead, but also with the Council of Economic Advisors, which try to make sure it's not going to screw the economy, and with the National Economic Council, which is also uh, very concerned about adverse economic impacts. There'll also be work with the uh, with the Department of Labor, is this going to have an adverse effect on working people? Right. So it's a very coordinated process. But this is really uh, an office that President Reagan empowered so that if that office thinks the regulation isn't ready in the sense that it would be more harmful to the American people than helpful, then the office has veto power subject to the president's personal override. So so it's funny because we could definitely do an entire podcast about everything that happened to you in this office and kind of the you know economy versus other adverse effects and and all of this. But I want to eventually I want to get to the the world according to Star Wars. I just wanted to kind of say how how different it was that that you're doing. And also I, I remember reading they didn't want to even after you were nominated for this office. The Congress didn't want to approve you. I just was curious about that. Like, why yes. were they against you? So, uh, you know, the Senate has to confirm many of the most important policymaking offices in the executive branch. And uh, President Obama's um, choices, the nominees, often ran into real difficulty. And I, w I was one of them. It took me nine months to get confirmed. And uh, I think it was a combination of things. I think the Republicans were uh, eager to block a number of the Obama choices. That was Even though you had um, uh, been in favor of a lot of Bush's policies and appointees and so on. You, yes, I, I uh, favored uh, actually my predecessor uh, under President Bush, the, the longest serving one I was a big supporter of. But I think they knew that I knew the president quite well, and uh, that uh, was a red flag for them. Uh, I have written a number of academic articles that... Um, Highly uh, cited, I'm sure. Uh, cited by law professors. It was surreal to see the members of U.S. Congress actually paying attention to these obscure law review articles. But... Uh, they saw some things that 
made them nervous. I have a daughter who rides horses, and I said some nice things about animals and animal welfare, and the farmers got concerned. Now, in an economic downturn, particularly, my focus is very much on, on helping farmers, not hurting farmers, but there was a concern that this would be someone who would try to make sure no one eats meat or it's all broccoli all the time. That was not my uh, my goal as a nominee or in, in office, but uh, there were concerns and uh, I, I felt fortunate to get through. So, so the final biographical thing I want to get to before we get to the, well, there's two more things before we get to the world according to stories. A, you're married to the current UN ambassador. Um, does she ever tell you like top secrets? You know, <laughs> uh, both of us have had access to classified information, and uh, neither breathes a word of classified information to the other. That's part of the rules of the game. All right, and then the other one is you wrote the enormous best-selling book, uh, which I read many years ago, Nudge, uh, with Richard Thaler. Uh, uh, that one actually is relevant to this book. So why don't you describe that for a second? Okay, so the basic idea in that book is that um, human beings often uh, make mistakes. They focus on today and not on next year. They're sometimes unrealistically optimistic. They sometimes get scared about risks that are very low, and they're sometimes complacent about risks that are very high. Uh, inertia is a very powerful force for human beings. And so the question is, what in a free society is a good response to that? And uh, well, well, in a free society, what do you mean first? Are you saying we're not necessarily, that nudge borders on, or the ability to nudge people and their decisions make us potentially not as free a society as we think? No, because uh, a, a nudge is designed to preserve freedom. So the uh, a mandate would be abridging freedom. The idea of a nudge is, is you often benefit from something that's like a GPS device, which uh, clarifies for you how you get to the direction you want to go in. So to think of nudges in government, um, a warning is a nudge, uh, disclosure of information like the nutritional content of foods or the calories on, on your bagel, um, a default rule that says, you know, if you don't do anything, you're going to be automatically enrolled in a savings program. That's a nudge. Well, it seems like the, some, some of those things are like um, almost, they're not quite nudge, but extra information or, or tools, but some things which, you, which definitely seem like a nudge in your book is kind of the placement of foods in a school cafeteria will influence how yes. kids will. And then, and then you also talk in this book, in the world according to Star Wars, about how uh, giving people extra information or even incorrect information about what songs are popular might lead them to like certain songs which they wouldn't otherwise have liked. Completely. That seems more almost... Uh, a nudge in the sense of manipulation? Well, we, we need a definition. So Thaler and I define a nudge as something that preserves freedom of choice but uh, steers you in a direction that makes your life go better. That's a benign nudge, let's say. So GPS is a defining nudge. If you go to the grocery store and it says, you know, warning, if you're pregnant, you shouldn't eat this. That That is, as we define it, a nudge. It's, it's a, it preserves freedom of choice, but it's like a GPS. If you're pregnant, you shouldn't eat that. Now, it doesn't say you're going to go to jail if you eat that. If you look at uh, 
a bag of peanuts and there's information about the nutritional content, that is a nudge as we define it. Uh, if a store, let's say at CVS, devises the outlay of the store so that healthy foods are right near the cash register and the unhealthy foods are, on a, are easily available, but they're in a more, more obscure location, that's completely a nudge. If a website has large fonts for things that it wants you to pay attention to and green colors for things that are, let's say, healthy or environmentally uh, beneficial, then then that's a nudge. Uh, so all these things count as, as a nudge according to our definition. Now, now it seems though like there's a spectrum. So GPS says, okay, you're going to hear, this is exactly the fastest route. There's really no reason to take any other route other than this. But now here's where we get into Star Wars. When Obi-Wan says, these are not the droids you're looking for, that's a nudge also. But on the spectrum, it's not like a 10, it's like more like a 1. And the force, quote-unquote, uh, I mean, quotes in the air here, that seems like a nudge, but more on 1 or 2 on the scale. Okay, so I'd, I'd say uh, I, I'd like to think that all nudges are kind of low numerically uh, on the scale in the sense that they are not manipulative, they're not deceptive, they're not tricks, and they're completely transparent. Uh, Jedi mind tricks show some of the uh, awareness of, let's say, behavioral science that the nudgers share. But Jedi mind tricks, particularly that one, uh, go beyond the nudge. There's deception there. So there's a kind of mind control. These are not the droids you're, you're looking for. There's some uh, management on the part of Obi-Wan of the stormtrooper's mind. And, the, and, the, and that is something behavioral scientists maybe can get in the direction of a little bit. But those of us who believe in a free society and in uh, respectful, let's say, uses of nudges, um, we don't want the government to be... Uh, uh, deceiving people. But, but but let's say, like a, a bookstore is a great example where there's deceptive nudges. Because anytime, I'm holding your book right now, if your book was in the Barnes & Noble and it's on the front table and it's facing forward, that means your publisher paid for that spot in most cases, if for Barnes & Noble, for instance, or, or most big big box bookstores. So so wouldn't you say that's a more deceptive nudge? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, certainly not deceptive in the same sense that Obi-Wan's uh, basically seizing the mind of the stormtrooper is. So uh, if you see a book in a prominent location, as I recently saw, to my amazement, in LaGuardia, the world according to Star Wars was there. I thought that was a dream, but I pinched myself and there it was. That's funny, but that uh, means they paid Hudson bookstores, I don't know, whatever, I, some I, amount I, of money to I, have it there. I actually don't know the answer to that. So there, there are two possibilities. You may be right. One possibility is that, that at LaGuardia or Barnes & Noble, uh, books that uh, get on the New York Times bestseller list or something uh, are, or books that the staff particularly likes end up there. Um, if so, then there's no deception. No manipulation. It's it's a kind of uh, nudge in the sense that they are tracking popularity in a way that creates a self-perpetuating system that might not be ideal, but it's not deceptive. The other possibility is that people pay to get the books up there. Um, that's deceptive if there's a representation that the books are up there for some reason other than that. And given the fact that you seem to know stuff about this, as, as I, I don't, 
if 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 people generally know the books that are there are the ones that are paid for, and if the ones that are paid for are paid for not randomly, but because the publisher has a sense, these are the ones that are really going to fly. Uh, then there's then there's uh, either no deception or or minimal deception. So th- there would be deception if you ask the average customer at a big st- store, why do you think the books are up there? And they said because the staff thinks they're popular books, meaning people are going to like them and they're good, something like that. And then the average customer says. I'm surprised to hear that it's actually because the publisher paid and the publisher paid for some reason other than, let's say, the uh, agreeable ones, that these are the ones people are going to like. So you know, this is a long way of saying whatever we think of how the books get there and whatever is the fact of how the books get there, it's, it's not quite like a Jedi mind trick. Well, so, so you go in, in this book. There's a lot of discussion about why Star Wars was popular. And I really find it fascinating because you, you go into other art forms and other periods of history and talk about the writers or artists who became popular who were little known during their time, which I find fascinating, actually. Um, like Maybe describe the, the story of Keats as, as an example. Okay, so John Keats was actually a very ambitious guy. He wanted to be what he now is. John Keats, uh, in the view of many people, the most beautiful poet in the English language. That's he wanted that. He died very young. Uh, he believed he was a failure, and his was uh, he at the time like in terms of the numbers. He was not. He would let's say he wasn't a big success. He was not regarded as you know the greatest or one of the very few greats. He had his fans, but. Uh, his tombstone, which he wrote, had something like "ridden water," meaning he just really was a meaningless failure person. And uh, Jane Austen at the time was not Jane Austen when she died. She was one of several women novelists who were kind of ranked together. She wasn't at the top. William Blake, who is, in my view, you know, one of the all-time great geniuses, plays a big role in, in the book. In fact. Uh, he was completely lost. So what happened with Keats was, at his death, it was you know uh, failure and uh, dismay. And then somehow, uh, after his death, some people thought this guy's amazing, and they formed a kind of echo chamber of uh, Keatsness. And the echo chamber kept his name alive. And eventually, through some combination, I think, of he is really good, he had big fans, and uh, some of those fans were important, meaning they designed the canon. And so, sure enough, Keats ended up in the anthologies. Now, if you'd asked people at the time... And his competitors didn't. We've forgotten about many people who were regarded as better than Keats, better than Jane Austen, better than Wordsworth. They're lost. Even the English professors barely know who they are. And their contemporaries ranked the ones we've forgotten. I discussed them in the book, though. I've forgotten their names myself. Uh, Their contemporaries ranked several of these well above uh, the ones who are famous. I think that's completely fascinating. Now, the optimistic view is that the ones who triumphed, Keats, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Blake, Austin, they're, they're just the best. And uh, 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 literary reputation is like a market, and they're kind of apple, if you love apple, as I confess I do. Uh, but I think that's too what... Um, 
uh, too perfect. And it's really not like that. The ones who emerge are great. But there's a good argument that the ones who've been forgotten to history uh, equal, maybe some of them better. And it's just the uh, serendipity of who got the echo chamber, who got a network, who got some uh, influentials to put them in the books that made them very great. And you can see this in the sense that uh, you know, uh, the Mona Lisa, which is the most famous painting in the world, it was not thought to be one of Leonardo's very greatest. It was not that famous until it got stolen. It, on one view, it, I guess I think this, it is very great. Is it greater than some of Leonardo's others? Probably not. Probably not as much great. But Could it, easily have been lost and thought to be one of his minor works. So, so you, you bring this up in the context of you know, the question, do we really know why Star Wars was great? And I can tell you, I mean, so I saw it, I was 10 years old when it came out, maybe, you know, give or take, I forget. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't know if it was popular or not. I wasn't being told it was popular. It was, I went out like on opening weekend or the week after and it blew my mind. Like, like, like you quote many people, you quote Jonathan Lethem, you quote, you know, um, Ridley Scott and other people. It, it, it blows your mind, the movie. So there was something else to Star Wars other than the fact that there was just this, um, you know, as you refer to it as this cascade of, of reputation. It wasn't like I had heard about it and all my friends said, you have to see it. Although that might have occurred from Star Wars newbies in terms of The Force Awakens, the latest movie. I don't know if that occurred during Star you, Wars. You make a great point. And I remember, too, seeing the movie. I, I remember hearing it was great, so maybe that affected me. But in the opening scene with that big ship that goes on and on and yeah. on, it's, it's a It's sad, the first movie like that. Yeah. Galactic, epic. Completely. So I, I feel unsure. Mm -hmm. So let me give two accounts and, uh, and, and just... Uh, um, admit my own uncertainty. So on one account, it is fantastic. Um, uh, the fact that it's fantastic wasn't enough to get it to be a great success. There are plenty of fantastic things that don't break out, at least at that level. Like what? So, so well, there's a TV show I'm really fond of called Awake from 2011, I mm. think. It's amazing. It's probably the best science fiction TV show, you know. Uh, I'll go on a limb here, ever. Mm. And uh, I have to check it out. It looks like you haven't heard of it. Most people haven't. It lasted a year and then flopped. Uh, a candidate for the best science fiction TV show ever. A candidate, I'd say, for one of the 15 best television shows in the last 40 years. And uh, it completely flopped. Um, it didn't c catch on in that uh, in that uh, network or cascade way. Okay, so in one view, Star Wars was great, but its phenomenal success was a product of the interaction of its greatness and the cascade effects and networks that it fed into. It needed the networks and the cascade effects. The greatness was not sufficient. Uh, you don't think the word of mouth from kids like me that you know so it was a very fast cascade based legitimately on yeah. me telling all my friends okay. you got to see this that's the second view and it may be right i'll tell you what makes me unsure whether it's right so let's say the second view is you know it was just too effing good it was uh for kids because if you look back at it as an adult there's some there's some problems with it yeah. now but as a kid 
was amazing. As a kid, completely amazing. And uh, my mother, who was no kid at the time, she found it amazing. So uh, on the, that's the second view, bound to break up, and bound to break out. And in the end, the book goes along with that view. It worries over the, uh, let's say, the um, uh, pervasive... Uh, uh, serendipity of social success and failure, but in the end, it says it's just too good. It was bound to break up. So in the end, I'm I'm with you. It was too good, and it was new as a genre. Like here, we had just gotten off of all of these kind of indie movies, like you know, I don't know, all, all the ones that Coppola and Scorsese were doing, like Taxi Driver yeah. and uh, The Conversation, and all these kind of like gloomy, emotional movies, and then suddenly it's Star Wars. I love what you're saying. I'll tell you what makes me hesitate. And in the end, I'm with you. But what makes me hesitate is the studio had no faith in it. They didn't make enough celluloid to fill the early demand. They had two trailers for it. They had to finagle the movie theaters to show it. They got it on 30-odd screens, maybe 40 on the first week, and that was rough. They had to threaten not to uh, allow them to show The Other Side of Midnight, which was their big movie, unless they showed this movie Star Wars. So the studio didn't see it. Um, How good, and you bring this up with J.K. Rowling too. Like she got rejected by twelve publishers, and obviously there's many stories like this. Huge, huge successes that were rejected everywhere. So why? And and you ask the question: Why wasn't there a bidding war for Harry Potter? Why don't people see this book is going to sell four hundred fifty right. million copies? And in fact, you could argue Harry Potter is Star Wars. There is the Completely. exact same, you know, the hero with a thousand faces yeah. kind of plot line. It is so, Star Wars. So so. What is up with that? Like, why don't why doesn't anybody? Okay, see it? okay. So, so one view is that they're the publishers and the movie theaters and the studios. They're just stupid. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time at the University of Chicago, and I don't believe that we have free markets when people are paid not to be stupid. And uh, if so many people make a mistake, there's something really interesting going on, which is uh, maybe that uh, the phenomenal success of Harry Potter depended on two things. First, they're great. And second, you needed the networks. Um, And that's the the theory I'm playing with. Uh, The alternative is Harry Potter and Star Wars, along one dimension at least, are really new things. So your point about Star Wars on this view, the movie theaters and the studio execs, they weren't stupid. It's just that they, they'd never seen anything like this, and they didn't know how to think about it. So, so, so being, afraid, being too new, I think um, uh, Stephen Johnson, who writes all these mm-hmm. books about the development of ideas, um, he would say it's, they were slightly outside of the adjacent possible. So there wasn't, people wouldn't automatically assume this is the next step in movie making. Yes. They're a little too far. Yes. Um, but I'll, I'll argue there, though, George Lucas had already you know, established himself with American Graffiti and THX 1138. And Harry Potter wasn't necessarily a new idea, a boy who had magic powers. It's true. Uh, Lucas, American Graffiti, I think is phenomenal. It's a completely different thing from Star Wars. And uh, I'm a great admirer of Lucas. And one thing that makes me admire him is his, I think, two great achievements are they're really different. Uh, American Graffiti is, I think, a heartbreakingly beautiful movie with uh, fantastic dialogue and romance. 
And I like the Star Wars movies even better, but they're not heartbreakingly beautiful in the same way. And the romance is cheesy. I don't think the romance is cheesy in American Graffiti. And the character of the, uh, you know, the the cool guy who's a little older than uh, he was. He was the cool high school guy, and now he's just hanging out. That's a very poignant uh, guy. So I think American Graffiti is amazing. But even if you thought American Graffiti was great and deserved its success, that was actually a big surprise success also. Then the guy comes up with Star Wars. You might think, well, what's he doing with himself? Right. He's got a knack for what? Teenage uh, angst and poignancy. And now he's doing something with robots and some old guy who's a hermit and a guy dressed up in a dog suit. So you might think the guy has established himself. But this new thing is, uh, it's, it's wild. I think what you say is on to something. Harry Potter, you're also right. It's not completely new. But the, the idea of a, a boy with magical powers and a wizard world as a big successful franchise, that might not have been the adjacent possible. Mm. Now, the, the trick with this is things that have that level of creativity and departure from what's succeeded recently most of those things just are catastrophic failures. So the even if they're really good, I think, I've pointed to the show Awake, which I, I quite love. Um, there's another one, by the way, in the same genre, Nowhere Man, uh, oh, an old show from I think the 80s, maybe the 90s, probably the 80s. It was phenomenal. Whoa. And you've never heard of it. I, I think that is uh, world historically good. Uh, that might have been not within the adjacent possible. They did make it got made, but it it, it tanked, and uh, that suggests that the this, there are two things that are necessary. It has to be amazing, and it has to be both really good and able to catch a wave. What I'm puzzling over right now is whether Awake and Nowhere Man are really on the same level as, let's say. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, which was a fantastically successful, uh, uh, great TV show, or on the level of, of Star Trek, which, of course, is a phenomenon. Now, it didn't have the, neither of those shows had the, the capacity for uh, a cult that Star Trek had. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What do you think made Star Trek a cult versus like, let's say, Battlestar Galactica, which is arguably just as good, but somehow Star Trek, which was only around for what, two seasons, three three seasons, uh, became like this cult phenomenon. And Battlestar Galactica, even with the reboot, uh, didn't quite become, it was a great show, didn't quite become the cult phenomenon. I think the, so some of the social scientists I most admire and some of my own work suggests that there's nothing intrinsic to Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek that established one is going to create a cult, the other not. There's a parallel world out there. Uh, somewhere where everyone knows Battlestar Galactica and they're talking about what's better, Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica? And they're saying Star Trek, that was pretty good, but it's no Battlestar Galactica. And it's just kind of a serendipitous uh, network explosion that made Star Trek the phenomenon, Battlestar Galactica the admired. And how? Did, and if I'm that, a- that's one view. I'm not sure it's true. So we could try another view, which would be there's something about the um, iconic nature of the three leading characters in Star Trek that uh, just can't be said about the Battlestar Galactica characters. 
that as, as great as they are, there isn't a Kirk and a Spock and a McCoy. I just don't know if that's true. Uh, the characters in Battlestar Galactic are, are, uh, are in the reboot, they're pretty amazing. So I, I'm torn on this one. I don't know how to know what's, what's right between the explanation that says, no, it just happened. Well, let me ask you this. And the explanation that says Star Trek is more suited to iconic status. But let's say, I mean, Star Trek also was a first in its genre. We had never seen kind of a dramatic, you know, hour-long science. I mean, maybe we had, I, I don't even know back then, there was Outer Limits. But there wasn't like um, uh, an arc of a story uh, in the 60s that was an hour-long science fiction show. Whereas by the time Battlestar Galactica had come around, there were there were many. And so I'm wondering if... Uh, the, the idea of something breaking out in a Star Trek way or even a Star Wars way is no, even no longer possible, given that we have so many things battling for the attention of young minds. Like, look, just in the past week, uh, Pokemon Go in one week becomes bigger than Twitter because that's what kids are interested in this week and next week it'll be something else. Can a Star Trek or even a Star Wars happen anymore? I think so. So Taylor Swift happened, and she has a kind of size that, uh, you know, in terms of popularity, I also think she's great, but she has a kind of size that is, uh, you know, she's outdoing Bob Dylan, and uh, whether she's outdoing the Beatles or Elvis Presley, I don't know, but on some numbers, she definitely is. Uh, if you look at the, the most popular movies and TV shows, of the last uh, last years, some of them have been uh, real phenomena. Now, one question is, are they real phenomena like Mad Men in the sense that they are kind of culturally defining and they have a kind of staying power, or are they uh, in terms of just the dollar numbers? So one idea, and I'm going to stick, stick by this idea, is that in terms of cultural centrality, uh, that is very doable now. Mad Men and Taylor Swift are two examples. Um, and uh, you can probably think of, of others. Game of Thrones has had that, a breakout status. Uh, very similar, I think, to Star Trek. Probably a lot bigger than Star Trek at the mm -hmm. time. So I think it, it's, it, it's quite possible. And one reason is that uh, Pokemon Go is a good kind of immediate example. We'll see how much staying power it has. I lasted for two days on it. Then I ran out of Pokeballs. I bought ninety cent, nine cents worth. Ran out of those. I think I'm done. Wait, with you Pokemon. played it? Yeah, I, I haven't even played it. I think I'm done with Pokemon Go, but we'll see. But one reason it was so popular is everyone loved it, and Mad Men got popular because it was getting more popular. People didn't want to be left out. But but I wonder though if that's Again, we're talking about, even though it seems like a short time, shows like Mad Men and even Battlestar Galactica or Lost, these are all from the OOs and not the 10s. And I wonder if the 10s with the rise of smartphones and apps and games and all that really has changed the landscape. So Game of Thrones and Taylor Swift also is from the OOs. So, so Game of Thrones, I don't know. But uh, it seems like that short tail versus long tail, short tail is getting a lot shorter because our choices are getting much more heavily curated by Amazon and iTunes, and the long tail has become enormous. The middle tail is enormous. You're asking a great question. So, uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, it stands to reason that as choices get more numerous 
and the possibility to um, select something which, let's say, 5% of people love rather than 90% uh, gets easier and personalization grows, that the idea of a culturally defining thing like Star Wars that just becomes more likely. So there's logic in what you're saying. And, and it goes along with something you wrote. I forget the name of the book, but it was in 2002 where you talked about essentially the, the internet would create a certain balkanization of information and of entertainment where uh, everybody would kind of just go on the internet only where their interests are as, expo- as opposed to being exposed to many choices. No, completely. And we are seeing that in the sense that the... The evening news doesn't have its defining character as it did once. Uh, the New York Times is still very important, but it doesn't have the kind of centrality that it did once. I, I want to make a, a kind of tentative pitch for the enduring nature of the cultural icons, which would suggest that though Taylor Swift did start in the aughts, uh, her uh, her huge breakout uh uh, albums and songs have been pretty recent. Those have been her, her biggest success. Game of Thrones is a very recent phenomenon. Uh, and the reason I think even with the uh, increasing difficulty of getting everybody to congregate on, on one thing, even with that, there's something that uh, people love about uh, something that everyone else loves. And my exhibit in, K- in chief is Star Wars. Star Wars now. The Force Awakens in actual dollars as opposed to inflation-adjusted dollars, so it's a little bit of a cheat, but in actual dollars, it's the most successful movie in the history of North America. Now, that's partly a nostalgia factor where the people like you and me who loved it early are, are pleased to be able to love it again. But in the book tour, what I've been amazed by is People who are 11 years old and 14 years old uh, coming up and talking about Star Wars, and I ask them what's their favorite, and the answer is completely unpredictable. They may say, I really loved Revenge of the Sith, or, and I've heard that from many yeah, kids. The prequels were not bad, it's just our generation didn't like them, but yeah. the ki- kids love them. Completely. So to see, the, the, to your point about whether cultural centrality is going to be possible, Star Wars suggests that it is, that you can see among people who are 14 or 15, you know, I think The Force Awakens is the best one yet, some people will say. Or well, I think Revenge I actually is- like your grades on it. You know, you had New Hope and Empire Strikes Back as first and second, or second and first, but Force Awakens is third, and I'm sort of up there that Force Awakens was among my my favorites. I I think I had Force Awakens actually a little lower, but I had it kind of tied. My view is Revenge of the Sith is tremendous. It's not perfect, but it's tremendous. I think Return of the Jedi is uh, is the best scene in any of the movies. That is the redemption scene. So I'd rank those three a little bit tied, but uh, I, I I can see putting The Force Awakens third. I think I have it fifth, but it's a little like very close val- balloting for the most valuable player. And if David Ortiz comes in a close third this year, uh, that's not so bad. 
Well, so so everybody says Star Wars is based, heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell and the the arc of the hero, the hero with a thousand faces. What and then they apply that same logic to other things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and, and so on. What what is that story? What why what you know? And again, given that Star Wars fit that model so perfectly, why didn't anyone else see? Oh yeah, this is definitely going to work because it's this iconic you know story structure. Okay, so what so, is that story structure? Okay, so let's talk about the amazing Jessica Jones as the latest incarnation of the hero's journey. Which I just started watching, by the way. Great show. Isn't it good? Yeah. Okay, so Jessica Jones uh, on TV um, clearly has abandoned the world of the superhero. So we can see her on a hero's journey on day one when the show begins. And here she is, a... Um, uh, a regular-ish person who is uh, called to adventure by uh, a challenging, really challenging adversary. Uh, she encounters um, uh, uh, a mentor-type figure who's also a lover, uh, not quite a mentor like Obi-Wan, but he has some mentoring for her. Um, she... Uh, uh, is protected by him in some ways and protects him in some ways. Also, they have some nice scenes in the in the sack. Um, uh, she eventually uh, claims and acknowledges her, her heroic powers, uh, defeats evil, and is in some sense sanctified. Uh, that's not full, it's just episode one, but I'm kind of treating Jessica Jones as a mid-course version of the hero's journey. So you can see it as saying that there's someone who's called to some challenging adventure, initially declines, accepts, has some helpers who are trainers also. Uh, Daredevil has that very clearly, by the way, more so than Jessica Jones. That's Obi-Wan and Yoda. Uh, then encounters evil, uh, is tempted, um, that's Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine, um, overcomes and is sanctified. And you can see in some versions, some accounts of Jesus's life, this is basically the tale. And what uh, George Lucas did was to draw on Joseph Campbell, whom he called his Yoda. Okay, so you ask, why don't these always succeed? Or why didn't they succeed before Star, Star Wars? Well, a lot of them did succeed both their defining myths in Africa and India and their, you know, $30 billion of success for, for Star Wars, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, all of these have the hero's journey content. Do, do you think like, um, let's say Stan, Stan Lee or Siegel and Schuster, you think they consciously said, okay, we're going to follow the story of Jesus with Superman and I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus may have played a role for some of this, but I don't think so. And what Joseph Campbell himself thought, he was influenced by Freud and Jung. He thought that this kind of springs from the, the human mind. These are the stuff of dreams and nightmares. So you don't have to read the Bible or know anything about African myths to have this tale resonate with you or even to write one of your own. Uh, and one thing that's cool about The Hero with a Thousand Faces, if you read the, the tale uh, as in the stylized versions, meaning that what are the key points, and then you think of your own life, that's it.
that's that, that's what makes it, I think, really work. Um, so what what Lucas did was not only do do this, the the hero with the thousand faces. He made it completely fresh. So he, as you say, did something people had never seen before, and they had these amazing spaceships. And so both there was psychological familiarity and a ton of surprises and mysteries. So he made it really new. If, if you just tell it in a way that is, you know, uh, I could write easily, I'm pleased to say I haven't, uh, catastrophically boring, uh, a tale of the hero's journey. Um, Jessica Jones, what makes it great, I think, is it has the same kind of freshness that Lucas had, meaning we hadn't seen anything like this before. Now, Jessica Jones is not quite at the iconic level of Star Wars, but what makes it tremendous is the way, you know, the the darkness and uh, seediness of that world uh, combined with kind of poking a wit and humor. I at least never saw anything like that before. Well, with, with Star Wars, it seems like what puts it a little over the top compared to even a Star Trek is this sort of metaphysical aspect of Force. Like, without the Force, I don't know if Star Wars would have would have really kind of taken it to the next level. It would have just been this space opera and everybody's fighting and then we, we go on to the next movie. But somehow I remember just as a kid, this idea of like you could hold your hand out and like move things around. So it was just this, this magical aspect. What role do you think that played in, and it That's kind great. of created a, this whole religion around it really. I mean, Jediism is a, a religion in the UK for instance. That's great. So. So if you're a kid, the idea that if you really try, you can move objects or control adults' minds, that's very attractive. Uh, and if you're not a kid, the idea of the force, it kind of connects with stuff that you might think that are there are secular versions and there are theological versions. And Lucas was trying to distill uh, lots of religions and... He is a spiritual person, and uh, uh, to say the Force is God, I think, is consistent with what he was trying to do. I think you're completely right that it would have been harder for the Star Wars movies to break out without the idea of the Force and making people think, what is this? Can I have access to it? To, to kids, that's, that's really cool. And you, it, it lends something to the mentor-mentee relationship as well. It's not just like, here's how you fight with a lightsaber. It's like, here's how you connect to the entire universe. Right. Completely. And that, that I mean, people like Star Wars for different reasons. So I wouldn't want to say that for everyone who loves it, the Force is necessary. But uh, you're right that that's, uh, that's part of the secret sauce. So, so I have a couple of random questions now. A, who's... In The Force Awakens, who do you think Ray's father is? <laughs> think it's Luke? Um, uh, do you have any inside dirt? Uh, uh, if I had inside dirt, I'd feel the same way I did when I worked on the President's re Review Board on Surveillance and Intelligence Technologies, which is to be uh, extremely protective of classified <laughs> material. So if I had inside information not telling, and if I didn't have inside information... Uh, very speculative, unclear. Now, did did they? Did you have to get approval from them to write this book? I did not. So, uh, the book was uh, based on no interviews, um, 
I uh, was on actually a national television show where the uh, the interviewer, uh, you know, she's very busy and she didn't know anything about this book. And she began by saying, you know, it's so amazing. You did all these interviews, the law professor. I, I, I didn't talk to anybody. Uh, to, to get the cover, we had to work for uh, permission and to avoid uh, uh, any, any violations of anybody's rights. Uh, permission was gotten from uh, Hasbro and from uh, uh, Lego, um, and it's it's kind of a it's it's not you know borrowing a screenshot or anything. I did have in an earlier draft some screenshots from the movies, and Lucasfilm wasn't that excited about the screenshots, so they're not in the book. And so, and there was one story you bring up in the book, which I was just just fascinating to me as someone who is always interested in career and reinventing career. You bring up Harrison Ford's situation. He was basically almost as you put it. I'm not going to put it exactly as you put it, but he was like a down and out actor who was working as a carpenter for, I guess, the casting director of Star Wars. And bam, what, what, what? Then he was selected to play Harrison Ford. Like that has to be the most, you know, serendipitous you know, event in acting history. Like he became right. this mega star after that. Yes. And uh, it's, it's an amazing story where Harrison Ford had a small role in American graffiti. He was good, very small role. And Lucas decided he didn't want any of the actors in American graffiti and star Wars. Uh, he's casting Han Solo and Harrison Ford happened to be doing carpentry work at the time when they were casting. And, uh, they kind of decided seeing him there uh, why don't we give him a try? And you can see on YouTube the uh, auditions, uh, and there, Kurt Russell and others tried to be Han Solo, and they were all very good. Uh, Harrison Ford knocked it out of the park. He was from day one. He defined that character as phenomenal. See, so you can. They could just tell, even just discussing with him socially, carpentry. That this is our this is our guy. This is our rebel. Well, I think they thought, let's give him a try. Mm-hmm. I don't think they thought at that stage go for it. I think they thought, we'll give it a try, even though they didn't want anyone from American Graffiti. And I love what you say about uh, the serendipity of it, because Harrison Ford is, as after that, he became one of the most important actors of our era, and Han Solo is probably his defining role, and it's iconic. Well, also Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, and without that carpentry work on that day, None of that stuff. Now, what I think is cool about that, I think that's actually not an outlier. That if we went through the history of many, many things, it would have the same form. So at a a much lower, tiny level, the very fact that I wrote this book is a product of something even more serendipitous than uh, Harrison Ford's appearing as Han Solo. And if you think of... You know, there's a book called Swerve by uh, Stephen Greenblatt, which is about Lucretius. And uh, the fact that Lucretius was discovered and didn't wasn't lost to history, that's very much serendipitous. And Lucretius's exact role in uh, the Enlightenment at all can be uh, disputed, but a very big role. The fact that you know, Barack Obama became president or Donald Trump became the 
the the Republican nominee, there have to be moments that have the same kind of it could easily have gone otherwise. So it's almost like there, there there's almost a technique here, which is just be in as many situations where serendipity could occur. Like Harrison Ford still had to be, he couldn't just sort of like wallow in depression in his apartment. He had to go out and be, say, okay, I'm not going to be an actor, but I'll be a carpenter at this guy's house. And he had to be there so he could hang out with George Lucas again. He had to be there. That's right. Being there can be really important. The question is what's there? And it might be that, you know, if he'd been some other there, he would have been in some Francis Ford Coppola movie, mm. and he'd be, you know, maybe the significant or something, but he, he wouldn't be Han Solo. So what, one final question, which has always kind of bothered me about the Star Wars trilogy, the dark side versus the light side, which is very kind of imposing names for it. Light kind of implies good, dark kind of implies evil, but... You look at the kind of if you look at them in order, the first time you know one tries to kill the other, the light, the the good guys are trying to kill the bad guys in Revenge of the Sith. Like sort of unclear even politically, you know, one's in favor of the strong centralized government, the light side, and it seems at first Palpatine wants a decentralized thing, although later turns into an empire. So it's always unclear to me why it was decided one would be good and one would be evil. Well, like why, okay. why and, and this is related to Return of the Jedi. Why would Luke ever, once it was clearly defined, why would Luke ever choose like the evil side? Okay, so... Uh, that almost I, seemed unbelievable to me. That, that's great. So Luke goes dark a little bit when he thinks his father is going to attack or do something bad to his sister. So Luke... Uh, uh, gives way to rage and hatred against his dad, thinking his sister's at risk, which is very much about like how Anakin goes bad, thinking his beloved is at risk, and it's all in the aftermath of his mother's murder. Mm. So uh, when, when our heroes, one goes bad and one goes bad for a little bit, it's because... Uh, uh, fear of loss leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Uh, so that's how you go bad. In terms of who's good and who's bad, there's. I think you're right. It's kind of a little interesting to think there's some ambiguity there. George Lucas, in the end, I think is thinking Palpatine is uh, a liar. Uh, he has power on his mind. Uh, killing people is fine. Doesn't believe in freedom. Uh, the Republic is a little bit uh, chaotic, and the Jedi didn't do what they were supposed to do. But uh, there's gentleness and, and goodness. Obi-Wan is our defining Jedi through the saga. And so the light side is, you know, uh, take care of people, don't let them die, um, protect the vulnerable. And the the dark side is kind of a lustful, uh, power man thing. That's worse. All right, I'll go along with that. Well, Cass Sunstein, you wrote The World According to Star Wars. Thanks so much, Cass. Thanks for, for joining us on the show. Thank you. Great pleasure. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, 
I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.